Well, I will echo what Austin said. It is, it really is good to have so many people back together every week. Um, I look forward to coming to this building now, <laughs> as opposed to coming and standing in front of a camera. So, it uh, it really is good. It just does something for a communicator to have people in the flesh to communicate with, to see smiles, to see, you know, uh, mostly agreement. Uh <laughs> and so uh, it 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 really is it really is good. Um, I'm opening up Dropbox so so I can get to my sermon text. And thank you for bringing little ones, as uh, I know that that can be uh, difficult. Uh, some people are more a little apprehensive about that because they don't want their little one to be a distraction. Let me just say this. My wife can attest that I have this uncanny ability to not know what's going on around me. She calls it me being aloof or something like that. I can be in my own little world. I have this wonderful ability to not know what in the world you or your little ones are doing so don't you worry about me at all uh i have that i have that i call it a gift my wife wouldn't see it the same way as that her coming around the corner um gotta say these things while she's not in front of me um so anyway here we are john chapter 13 looking at verses 36 through 38 today so i'll give you a second to scroll to there flip to there Whatever it is that you are doing. John chapter 13, 36 through 38. Austin will pick up next week with chapter 14. And so you can be looking forward to that. I want to pull that down so I can, so I can see the Vaughns well. Um, let me ask you this question. You don't have to answer out loud. But if we're honest, do you have times in your life that you just feel like you're a failure? Like you just kind of miss the mark on a particular day or maybe if you're a student or were a student and you studied and you bombed a test which seemed to happen to me a good bit and you walk away and you kind of feel defeated you kind of feel like a failure I'm not trying to be fatalistic or humdrum or anything like that I just I just read a text like the text we're getting into today and I wonder about Peter and I wonder about how he felt about his own shortcomings how he felt about his own uh, failures. And I got to thinking about my life and how I oftentimes feel like a failure. Not because my wife or my children in any way make me feel that way. Not because anyone makes me feel that way. I will say when you're working with Austin Jowers because he's good at everything, you know, sometimes you feel a little less than, right? So, but that's okay. I love him. You know, uh, I can't be God's gift to everything. So, I fail sometimes, right? I feel that way. Uh, I was at work the other day, and it was one of those things. I was taking over a project momentarily for one of the leads who left to go on vacation. So trying to button up this project, just some small things to do here and there, some punch list stuff. And Lowe's or Home Depot is about 15 minutes or 20 minutes away from where I was working. And I thought to myself, I need to get everything I need before I go to the job, because I pass Lowe's and Home Depot going to the job from my house. So I'm thinking to myself, let me make sure that I have everything I need, and I go and I gather all the supplies. I'm rolling through the punch list, and then it dawns on me, I've missed this item or that item. And so I'm frustrated because now I've got to take a 15 or 20 minute drive one way, which means it's going to be 30 minutes, not including the time I spend in Lowe's or Home Depot finding whatever it is I need to find. So let's say 10 minutes minimum. You know, I'm already 40 or 45 minutes, you know, off the job trying to get back to the job to get the job done. And I feel like a failure. Why couldn't I have thought of that? Austin would have remembered these things, right? He never has to go to Lowe's. 
right? <laughs> so I feel like a failure, and that's, that's kind of funny, and that's true, and I'm not, you know, depressed or anything like that, but those are moments in my life where I'm like, man, I just wish I was better. <laughs> I wish I was better at remembering things, so I feel like a failure. Sometimes I feel like a failure as a dad. Sometimes I feel like a failure as, uh, as a husband. You know, I feel like a failure as a pastor sometimes, and this is in no way seeking your approval or affirmation. This is just reality. Okay, so if you're honest, you feel like a failure sometimes when you miss the mark or maybe you have these good intentions and somehow those intentions never become actual actions. And so you feel like a failure. You know, you had this opportunity to do this, but maybe you missed this because of whatever reason. Maybe it's because you lack discipline in an area. Maybe it's because you're forgetful. And so, <sighs> failed again. Maybe sometimes your failures are down here. Maybe sometimes your failures are more monumental, you know. Hey, Alan, make sure that you turn off the oven <laughs> whoops you know if I burn the house down I could feel like a monumental failure in that moment so I can identify with Peter in the sense that I have these failures in my life and you have these failures in your life and you look at the life of Peter and there's these failures that go from point A to point B to point C and then there's this monumental failure where he denies Christ not once but three times I mean, imagine how you would feel on a failure level if you denied Christ. I mean, one of your failures are you get out of the boat and you start pursuing Jesus. You're walking on the water, which is pretty magnificent. And then you take your eyes off of Christ. You succumb to fear. You succumb to all the elements that are around you, and you start to sink. And so you feel like a failure because you couldn't stay laser-focused on Jesus. Or maybe it's because Jesus is washing your feet like he was washing Peter's, and he comes, to G he comes to Peter and says, no, 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 don't touch me. In an act of humility, and his intentions were good, but Jesus says, if I don't do this, you don't share with me. I felt again, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. On the transfiguration, Jesus is saying, let's set up camp right here. Let's stay here. Let's do this thing. We've got Elijah. We've got Jesus. We've got all these things happening. That's awesome. People have been called from, called from heaven to be here with us. Let's stay here. This seems like a good idea, and he gets rebuked. Man. It feels like a failure again. Golly, why can't I get it right? <laughs> These things look good. Why can't I see it clearly? You know, so sometimes we, we fail and we feel that way. In the text today, Jesus identifies his next betrayer. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at how Judas was identified as the one that would betray Jesus. And Jesus dipped the morsel and he handed it to Judas. And we say, man, what would it have been like to be there? What would it have been like to either be Judas or to be the disciples who looked at Judas? Stinks to be you, bro. <laughs> Jesus just called you out. You're the one that's going to betray him, and Judas did. But then Jesus identifies his next betrayer. And it wouldn't be the one who was a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. It wouldn't be the one who was elected before the foundation of the world to be the one that would hand Jesus over. It would be the one who loved Jesus legitimately. It would be the one who Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It would be that one, one of his closest, one of who was more vocal than most of the other disciples throughout the scriptures. It would be that guy that becomes the one that would betray Jesus. So this is where our text is. So I'm going to be in this text, but I'm also going to discuss what happens in John chapter 19 because that's where the actual betrayal takes place. So John chapter 13, verse 36 begins this way. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? We've already had this discussion 
about Jesus saying, I'm going somewhere and you can't follow me, you can't come with me. Your sacrifice is not enough, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to atone for sins. You can't atone for sins, your time has not come. You will eventually die and you will eventually be with the Father, but that time is not now. So Peter just can't let it rest. Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I think Peter's intentions are sincere. I think Peter wants to be with Jesus. I believe that. I believe that Peter genuinely loved Christ. His intentions were rock solid. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Really? He says, truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me, not once, but three times. Now, I wasn't there, but to some small degree, to some small degree, I've both in my life been the betrayed and a betrayer. I've broken my word to people. I've not kept my promise to people. So by a small token, I understand what it is to be betrayed, and I know what it is to be the betrayer. But can you imagine Peter receiving these words from Jesus? I mean, Peter loves him. And Jesus says, will you lay down your life? The grandest expression of faithfulness. Peter says, I will give my life for you. I will suffer for you, Jesus, because I'm, I'm sold. I've bought in wholesale. Really, Peter? You will deny me. And Peter has to absorb that information from Jesus. And this would be Peter's most monumental failure. It would be the capstone in his list of failures, his portfolio of failures. This is the capstone of all of that. Yeah, we, we, we get out of the boat and we start to sink. Absolutely, he cuts off the soldier's ear. Yeah, failure there, good intentions, although failure, he gets rebuked. Put your sword away, Peter. Peter's called Satan for crying out loud. You know, he's called Satan. Why? Because he failed in that moment. He stood in the way of the cross when Jesus is saying, this is what I must do. No way, man. No way, you're not going to the cross. No, I have to do this, right? And so Peter's had these failing moments, but this is the capstone. He's going to deny Jesus, which we see in John chapter 19. So you don't have to turn there unless you want to, but John chapter 19. Let me just read that account so that you can see it. It begins in verse 17 of chapter 18 where it says the servant girl at the door said to Peter, Jesus has already been arrested, and now Jesus ha is, is being marched to, to, to stand before the authorities and it says, there was this servant girl that said to Peter, you also are one of this man's disciples, aren't you? And he said, I'm not. I'm not. And it says, now the servants and officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. Let me just throw this out there to you because this is pretty fascinating. In a few weeks, months, however long it's going to take us to get to John chapter 21, Jesus reinstates Peter, which we'll, 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 we'll see just for a moment. He reinstates Peter. And it's just neat that when Jesus comes back to be around Peter later to reinstate him, to show him great love, it's around a charcoal fire. 
right? And so that may have no meaning. It may have great meaning that I don't see yet. I just think it's very interesting, and it'll be fun to explore that when we get to that point. So if we move forward, I'm sorry, this is all in ver- uh, chapter 18, not 19. But you move to verse 25. Here's where Peter denies a second and third time. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did, you, did I see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. Three times he denied. And interestingly enough, around that same type of fire, a charcoal fire, Jesus asks Peter three times, do you truly love me? So maybe I do see a little bit of a correlation there. So we have this monumental failure by this man who genuinely, legitimately loves Jesus. And so our objective that we take from this text today is I want us to learn that our failures are not meaningless, our failures are not arbitrary, but that they serve to teach us valuable, valuable lessons. So we look at Peter's life, and in this sense, we're going to look at his failures, and we learn valuable lessons, and that's going to communicate the same way when we look at our own failures. So I'm hoping that this will be encouraging for us today. So a few things I want to highlight right here from the text. First of all is this. Through Peter's failures, we learn that even our best intentions do not always translate to equal action. Right? Peter had great intentions. If you were to ask Peter, what are you intending to do? I'm intending to go the distance with Jesus and for Jesus. But then where the rubber meets the road, and the first time, I think, if I remember correctly, that his life is potentially threatened. I mean, they've just arrested Christ. Christ is being hauled off to the authorities, and they ask Peter, hey, you're one of these guys, too. What's Peter? Who's Peter to think that he's not going to be arrested and lumped in? Obviously, he thinks he's going to. This is why he denied Jesus. This is why he betrayed Jesus in this way. But it's through Peter's failures that we learn even our best intentions do not always translate to equal action. Look, this isn't like this isn't like grade school where you've told your buddy you wouldn't tell a secret, and then the next person you see you tell a secret. That's an offense, and that's betrayal, right? And maybe you go to the backyard of the cornfield, as they used to say, and you duke it out, right? You fight, you 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 get it done, okay? I'm not saying that's good. I'm saying that's how it's handled a lot of times, right? And then you're over it. This is not like backyard baseball or backyard football where you've promised the not-so-athletic kid that I'm going to pick you first if I'm team captain, and then when the, when the time comes, you're like, nah, man, there's too much at stake, man. This is the backyard bowl. We've got to get this done. We've got to win, right? I don't understand. I was always picked first, so I don't know how that works, but I know people were always picked last, right? So you got You've betrayed this kid that you promised that you would pick first. That's betrayal, but we get over that. Yeah, kind of shady, but you get over it. It's an offense, but maybe minimum or minimal offense. And so now you get to this moment where it has a different consequence. The weight of this offense is different. This is a betrayal at its highest form. You have Judas, who has betrayed Jesus, betrayed Jesus unto death. Now you have Peter, which the sting of this offense is different Now, I'm not trying to say necessarily that Peter's offense was greater. In some cases, I think that on an emotional level. And what I mean by that is Judas betrayed Peter, but I mean, Judas betrayed Jesus. But what did we expect Judas to do? Someone who's called a son of damnation? Someone's called in the Latin a masso perdidio, a a mass of destruction? Someone who's 
credited with those kind of titles? Do you really expect someone like that to stay faithful or true to the cause? No. So it's no surprise to us. Not, not mentioning the, the prophecy from, from the Psalms that tell, or the Proverbs of Psalms that tell us about this. You know, now you have this issue where you've got this great offense. So Judas betrays Jesus and it hands him over to be scourged and crucified. But Peter, a close, a close brother to Jesus, a close friend to Jesus, one whom Jesus had walked with for three years, that he invested in, poured in, that they had gone through a lot of tumultuous times together. This is Peter. I mean, I'm, let me just ask you, if you've ever been betrayed, does it sting worse to be betrayed by someone you love much or by someone that's always been against you? It stings to be betrayed by someone you love, someone that you trust, by someone that you thought would have your back. That's a betrayal that you don't really quite easily, if at all, get over. And this was the great offense of Peter's betrayal. But I think Peter's heart was in the right place. I think he was driven with the purest of motives or the purest of intentions. But here's the question. But, well, but when the time came for him to act, what happened? His intentions were not enough. So if I were to give a title to the sermon, it would be when our intentions aren't enough because there's a reason folks there's a reason that there's a quote that you've heard since you were a little child that says hell is filled with what good intentions we understand the sentimentality behind that we understand that intentions are only what they are just like opinions right we understand that don't give me your intentions give me decision give me action give me something not your best intentions not your well wishes give me action Give me something that will validate and substantiate how you've postured yourself and something that will validate the claims that you make. We don't want intentions. We want action. We want decision. I think Peter's intentions were, were good. I really do. But when the time come, his intentions were not enough. How many of your best intentions don't seem to materialize? Right. Think about that for just a second. How many times have I told my wife, I intend to take care of that project around the house. I think we've been working on year 17 or whatever to reroute the, uh, the dryer vent that comes out. You know, are you going to take care of that? I intend to do that. Those are my intentions. Hadn't been done yet, right? So, hey, I'm just modeling humility for you folks, okay? I've got these failures that are just building up in my life, building up. What, what about your intentions to maximize time with your family or your intentions to have a healthier lifestyle? You know what? This is Monday, tomorrow's Monday, I'm eating good. Eh, I'm going to wake up and eat a Twinkie. You know, <sighs> blew that already. Your intentions were great, and you meant it. You had every intention, but sometimes our intentions are not enough. What about our intentions to evangelize? I intend. I intend to communicate this with my neighbor. I intend to communicate this with my family member, with my friend. Where do those intentions get us? I think a lot of times we see that they're not that meaningful. If intentions are going to become actions, they must become decisions. Now, now let, me, let me draw a line of differentiation between intention and decision. Okay, I know they're very closely related, but 
for, for the purposes of walking through this text and talking through failures and what we can glean from these failures and how they can prove valuable to us, you know, as we move forward from ours or looking at Peter's. Let me draw this line of distinction. When I think of intention here, how I'm using this, I think of something that's more theoretical, not something that's actual. When I think of decision, I think of something that you've planned for, that you've made preparation you know, if I intend on going on a vacation next year, that vacation is going to cost money. It's going to cost time. And you know what matters? It's going to matter that I start making the necessary preparations. I've got to make actions to be able to do that, or I've got to do actions in, in order to make that become a reality. So there is a line of distinction that, 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 I'm, that I'm drawing there. So let me, let me package this for you based on these definitions, based on these distinctions, intention versus decision. Here's how I want to package and present this to you. One day, one day it won't be busyness that tests your faithfulness. We have intentions to be faithful, just like Peter had intentions to go the distance for Christ, and then the first moment of opposition, he backed down. We have intentions to faithfulness. I could sit with every one of you individually and say, what are your intentions as a follower of Christ? As it, as it, as it, it relates to Haven Ridge as it relates to your personal health and growth spiritually, and our intentions are going to be good. Well, I, I, I intend to be further along next year than I was this year. I intend to know more scripture. I intend to have talked to more people about the gospel. I intend to affirm more people. I intend to use my gifts more readily and more often than I use them. I intend to be more uh, of a people person as opposed to a recluse. I will intend to do these things for the edification of the body and for the saints of God. And those are our intentions towards faithfulness but what gets in the way of those things a lot of things busyness schedule one day it won't be a virus that tests your and my faithfulness and i don't just mean faithfulness to a gathering like this i mean faithfulness to all things that pertain to being a follower of jesus because let's be honest the virus does do that it's a test of our faithfulness and I say faithfulness rather than faithful to this or faithfulness to that. Faithfulness, broad sweeping, generalized statement to say all things that it is encompassed when we think of being a follower of Christ. And you have to ask yourself and others have to ask themselves, does something like a pandemic, does it repress my faithfulness to the body of Christ, to the word of God, to evangelism, to all these other things? One day, it won't be business. It won't be a virus. One day, it will be real persecution that's at your door. One day, it will be something like that that tests your faithfulness. And if our intentions aren't strong enough in the times that we fail, in the times that we fail, if our intentions aren't strong enough to keep us faithful here and here and here and here, when the real threat, when mortality rate goes through the roof because someone's saying, I'm going to shoot you in the head or I'm going to cut off your head if you don't renounce your faith in Christ. If that happens, and that's the extreme, there's many, many other forms of persecution. If all we have are intentions Will, will, will we be able to stand when that time comes? 
or will we fail? In this case, you don't want to be caught on your heels. So rather than have these good intentions, you make decisions. And with decisions come preparation. With decision comes action. Make the decision now that you will not deny Christ, for example. Your decision will be substantiated by the preparation that you make to ensure that you will carry out your decision. If we decide we're going on vacation, hey, we're doing this, it's no, more, it's, it's no longer theoretical. We're going to put things in place to make sure this happens. We're going to save money. We're going to ask for time off. We're going to do all these things in preparation to see this happen because we've decided that. We're not just intending to get to that. We're doing it. We have decided these things. So I do draw a line of distinction or differentiation between these two. So here's some practical application just to think through. Put the time in today so that you might stand strong on that day. This is the point of Ephesians 6. You prepare yourself. I intend, well, I decide, to be consistent with my own definitions, I decide that I'm going to stand in the day that persecution comes on my door. And where it's different than intentions is I'm deciding. So to prove that, I'm preparing myself. Maybe I start to strengthen my own apologetic, my own ability to give a defense of the faith. You know, I'm deciding that I'm not going to be without words when someone presses me about the hope that's within me. If I decide to do that, the difference is I'm going to put in the time to sharpen myself. Whereas if it's only intentions, well, I intend to be sharp enough, to be good enough. And then intentions never translate to action. And then you're caught on your heels. We do this for so many things. We prepare when we're going to be gone somewhere. We make these preparations. We prepare when we're in school. We're taking tests. We study so that we can be approved at the end of these things by passing. We prepare when we decide to run races. We put months and months and months of training for those of you that run more than a quarter mile at a time. We put months of training into these things because we don't want to end up on that day to be found wanting. You can't go and run a full marathon unless you're maybe Natalie and Caroline without months and months of training. You can't do it right? I mean, you can't do that. So we do what? We prepare. Our intentions are more than just theoretical. They become decision. We're deciding. How do you know? Because we're out running. We're out training. We're out getting ready. We prepare when we're going to be parents of a child, whether it's a new child, uh, our first child, or another child, a new child. We prepare, right? Maybe you go to a Lamaze class. Maybe you read what to expect when you're expecting, Maybe you read Shepherding a Child's Heart. You know, maybe you're doing this, you're preparing yourself. You might get the room ready because who has a child that comes through and you're like, oh, well, they can sleep on the carpet in a room with no furniture. No, you prepare. If we prepare for these temporal things, why wouldn't we prepare for the things that matter in eternity? If we decide now that Christ will be our greatest treasure, then we can prepare so that all treasures will fall away. Do you hear that? If we decide that Christ is to be our greatest treasure, we can then prepare so that all other treasures fall away. And that's the question. Is Christ your greatest treasure? And you might say yes, you might say no. If it's no, 
and you want him to be your greatest treasure, if you decide for him to be your greatest treasure, it doesn't happen through osmosis. It doesn't happen because you will it to happen in your mind or theoretically. It doesn't necessarily happen just because you've prayed for it to happen. When the Lord was leading Joshua after he took over for Moses before he stepped into the river to cross it, because God said, I'm going to part the waters. But God said, but first, you've got to show faith. You've got to step foot into water before I do a thing. And that's how God works sometimes. We can will and want and wish and pray for godliness and that God will be a treasure and that all our other idols will be destroyed. But a lot of the times, I would say most of the time, not to say that God doesn't do it differently from time to time, but I would say if that's what you want, the expectation is that you put forth action. Is that your intentions move to decision. And in decision, you make right preparations so that you can get the desired outcome, that being Christ as your greatest treasure. Because when persecution comes to your door, that's the way that you will stand, is if Christ is your greatest treasure. In that moment where Peter denied Jesus in John 18, in that moment, Peter's greatest treasure was his life. Peter's greatest, greatest treasure was his safety. I'm not saying Christ wasn't his greatest treasure before, and I most assuredly would argue that he was his greatest treasure after. But in that moment, when the rubber met the road for Peter, Peter caved because he sought after his own safety. So I see that through Peter's failure, we learn that our best intentions do not always translate to equal action, but also through Peter's failure, we learn that our lives are not meant to be our greatest treasures. At the moment when Peter denied Christ, he put his safety above his loyalty to his Lord. He was afraid for his life. And when we're pressed hard enough, something ends up, there's some kind of response. Something comes out. We all know that our lives are not to be the greatest treasure. This is obvious. I'm not telling you anything new, and I know that. You know, if I say to every one of you, hey, what, what should be your greatest treasure? Jesus. And I believe you believe that with all your heart. Absolutely. But I would also suggest that we don't always act like that. Right? The actions of our life don't always say, Jesus is my greatest treasure. And this is something we have to fight and combat and be proactively working against forever. Because we have this sin nature that plagues us. We cling so tightly to our lives. We hold our lives so so very dear, but everything about being a Christian says our lives should be ready to be poured out as offerings unto the Lord, whatever that means. And it's Romans 12 and, 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 and the book of Philippians. We want to live. This is why the curse of death is so appropriate. Because for most of us, we fear that the most. Christians, non-Christians, death. We often want nothing more than to preserve our own lives, and I get it. I get it. You're talking to someone who every time I've ever boarded a plane was convinced I'm going to die. That's it. That's a noise that I, like I'm some plane expert. That's a noise I shouldn't be hearing. It's, it's, it's gone. I'm gone. You know, I'm not saying I have these premonitions. I'm not getting weird on you or anything like that, but I've seen movies about people, you know, like Final Destination, not recommending it, but they, this guy has a premonition. I'm like, I'm that guy. My premonitions have never come to pass, by the way, but I can see these things played out in my brain. This is where I die. Every time I get on my motorcycle, every stinking time, maybe I'm fatalistic, more so than I thought. I get on the motorcycle, I'm like, this is a good scenario for me to be done. This is, 
this is going to be the day that I'm going to fall. You know, I, I can't help but think those things. I went to this place in Missouri called Barn Swings years and years and years ago. It was the most redneck thing I've ever done. And there's no business that any sane human being should, should have being in the middle of a Missouri field, like children of the corn type place, with, 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 with this old barn that was just ripe to be burnt down to the ground. And there was more hay than I could ever, ever possibly count that made up the infrastructure of this entire barn. They called it barn swings. And so you'd go there, and there was this rope, aged as it was, and you'd get on this rope. It was like this weird kind of country bumpkin version of Fight Club, except you're playing on ropes and swings. And so we go out there, and you'd swing on this rope, you know, and there was just too much opportunity to die. I don't remember ever signing some kind of waiver, and I remember being there thinking, this is it, this is it. I'm dumb and dead at this point. This, this is how I'm going to go out. Not a blaze of glory. Not for the sake of Jesus. I'm doing some redneck thing in Poduck, Missouri, swinging on a swing that I have no business swinging on with people that I don't know. But the worst part of that whole thing was there was this big tower that you could stand on. I had two guys peer pressure me into this. And we all stand and they strap you in. And I can't even begin to tell you the lack of engineering that went into this contraption. And I thought, why am I doing this? I, I am a sissy with no backbone. I should punch these guys in the face and go about my business. But I'm like, I can't do it. So I'm stuck between Jacob Harris and Noble Mosby, and I hope you're watching this, boys, because I hate you. So we're stuck between these guys, and they're like, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. And I'm screaming like a girl. Sorry, ladies, but that's what was happening. And they push you off. They push you off, and you fall backwards, and you just kind of start swinging around. Now, I will say it was fun in hindsight. I would not do it again <laughs> at all. And then later, the whole place burnt to the ground. But I thought I was going to die. <laughs> Somebody dropped a match, and it was over. Because the thing was 90% dry hay. Plane rides, rappelling, zip lining. I've done all these things. And every single time, I'm thinking, this is the day that I die. It's over. I'm done. This is not a rabbit trail, Austin. This is a point. <laughs> Where are my notes? I can show you. So I get it. I get the fear of death. I get, I get that. I get it. So I can identify with Peter when he sits there and he's around this charcoal fire and all these things have just happened and somebody comes up to him and says, hey, that, you belong to him. Uh, no. Knee-jerk response, maybe? Premeditated response? I don't know. Look at the world right now, people. The world is turned up, upside down because we fear death. The world is upside down because we're afraid to die. Forget mortality rates, all these things. We are afraid to die. People have completely altered their lives, their schedules, their routines. Because what? We're afraid to die. We didn't do this because of flu, did we? Why? Because people didn't think they would die from that. The game changes when you think you're looking at death becomes very sobering at that point where did the boldness that peter had where did that where did the garden boldness go just moments before he's ready to throw down in fact he does he chops off a guy's ear to defend jesus and then probably minutes to mere hours later i mean jesus hasn't even been brought to the authorities yet and peter's already denied him where'd that boldness go At the moment Peter denied, he had a greater treasure than Christ in that moment. But listen to this. When Peter denied him, and the only gospel that 
that gives an account of this is Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 22, verse 62, or verse 61 and 62 says, when Peter denied him, it was interesting because all this is happening. Jesus is being marched away. Peter's sitting there processing everything that just happened. All that Jesus has said was going to happen is now actually happening. I'm trying to make sense of all this. I mean, I'm sure it's highly emotional, highly unsettling. And then Peter denies Jesus. And it says right after that, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The first time Peter denied him. And the Lord turns. I don't know where the Lord was in this moment. Was he marched down the way? Was he, uh, he, he, he was in close enough proximity that he looked at Peter. And Peter had to square up with the man that he said, I will, go to the, I will go to death with you, for you. And he had to square up and look in the eyes of the man that he betrayed. And Peter, remembering the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows, today you will deny me three times. And it says, Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Luke's gospel is the only gospel that gives an account of Peter's reaction to his own denial. And I want you to let that settle for just a second. Peter came face to face with Jesus, whom he just tried to fight off a soldier with a sword. And now at the next moment, the next corner that's turned, he's denying Jesus, and he has to look him in the eye. It says he went out and he wept bitterly. Why? Because Peter does love Jesus. But in that moment, he sees his failure. And it overwhelms him, as it should overwhelm us. Before we wipe our brow with relief because we weren't Peter in that moment, aren't you glad you're not in that moment? Aren't you glad it wasn't you that the story's written about? It wasn't you that denied Jesus. But before we wipe our brow and say, whew, glad it wasn't me, consider all the ways that we do, in fact, deny Christ. Because we're not off the hook. It's been made very clear that, for I've been crucified with Christ, and yet not I live, but it's Christ who lives in me. If Christ lives in me, there should be a reflection that comes out of me that is Christ as well. If you are being conformed to the image of Jesus as a believer, then that image should be represented to others as they see you because they're seeing the transformative power that God is doing in bringing you more and more into the image of Jesus. So when we fail to rightly image Jesus, in a sense, we deny Jesus. When we sin, we deny that Jesus is better. When we choose these things, we deny that he's better than our sin. This is how this works out. So we're not off the hook. You may not have ever said, I don't know him, but our actions quite often say that very thing. And when our earthly treasures begin to diminish, our eternal treasures come into focus. And with focus, we are less likely to sink. So Peter's failure didn't win, Peter's failure did not win the day. So let me get to some good news for you. But rather, this is not how Peter would be remembered. This is not, it is the capstone of his failures, but it's not the capstone of his life, okay? So it served as a moment that would catapult him into faithful ministry that would leave God, uh, a God-honoring mark on redemptive history. So Peter goes from guttermost to uttermost as far as the, his moment's failure, right? So if you're th sitting there thinking to yourself, man, I failed. Man, I, I, I feel like a failure this morning. Maybe I said something I shouldn't have to my wife. Maybe I said something I shouldn't have to my spouse. Maybe, maybe I did this. Man, I'm such a failure. Let this be known. Let this be known is that the grace of the Lord is at work so that your story doesn't end that way. That's not the capstone of your life. 
Okay, God is at work mightily in the life of believers to bring himself glory. I'm not saying you'll be used the same exact way that Peter was used, but let me walk through some things that you need to see. So, Peter, his moment served as a moment that would catapult him into faithful ministry that would leave a God-honoring mark on redemptive history and would ultimately lead to his martyrdom. So here we go, the final thing, briefly. Through Peter's failure, we learn that the measure of God's grace far surpasses the weight of our sin. So if you've had a bad taste in your mouth because you're forced to look at your own failures, have a good taste in your mouth now because guess what? God's grace is weightier than your shortcomings. His grace extends further and is more powerful than your failures, than your impure motives, even your best intentions that never actually translate into equal action. Consider then how Peter would finish his days, the amazing grace that would cover his life. In chapter 21, Jesus reinstates Peter. He sits with him around this charcoal fire. And he says, Peter, do you really love me? Ask him again, Peter, do you really love me? Peter, do you really love me? And at the end of it, he said, hey, follow me. He didn't say, you've worn out your welcome. He didn't say, hey, man, <laughs> three strikes, you're out. You denied, 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 you're done. He said, follow me. Keep following, keep pressing. Peter is graciously given boldness that he previously lacked. Listen, if you start in the book of Acts and you start working through, you see Peter's sermon, his first sermon at Pentecost, where God uses this unremarkable failure to proclaim boldly the gospel of Jesus before the very ones he feared just moments before. Peter couldn't muster the courage to say, yes, I know him. And then right down the line, Peter is standing before people of the same cloth and he's making these professions about the death and the resurrection of Jesus with seemingly no fear. Peter urges people to repent in Solomon's portico. People, Peter preaches the resurrection of Jesus before the council of religious leaders in Jerusalem. Peter was used to bring the, inflama uh, the inflammatory but good news of the gospel to the Gentiles. And I added that inflammatory statement because you better believe when Peter would go out and do this, people hated it. People hated it. Interestingly, it says this, that when Peter preached that the Holy Spirit fell on all those who would hear. Now, there were those that denied, but in this context here, in that portion of the book of Acts, where Peter was speaking in this instant, the Holy Spirit was causing everything he said to fall on the ears of people. I've never been a part of something like that. I mean, imagine going somewhere where you're looking at people that are lost, just a, a tribe that has never heard the name of Jesus. I've witnessed to a lot of people, and the overwhelming majority of people that I've witnessed to in that moment did not profess Christ. But imagine being the failure that Peter was, having that monumental history record-breaking failure and now he's preaching to these people as an untrained uneducated unlearned man who is considered to have turned the world upside down along with other disciples and now everybody's hearing him and how do we know that it's substantial they're not just tolerating him but the spirit of god is falling on everyone who hears it just screams the grace of god it just screams the fact that, guess what? It never was about your accomplishments or your failures, but that God might be glorified in using a broken, broken earthen vessel like yourself. And that should give you hope. Because sometimes our failures stunt us. They cause us to live in shame, which has never been the point. There's a difference 
in saying, I realize I've made these mistakes, now I'm going to grow, and I'm going to praise God for His grace. There's a difference in that and saying, you know what, I've made this mistake, now I have to wallow in my own self-pity and shame. And guess what, that's a lie from the enemy, because God never intends for you to live that way. You made mistakes, big surprise. Are you surprised that you made mistakes? Are you surprised that I've made mistakes? Are you going to be surprised when tomorrow's failure comes in my life? No, you shouldn't be. Peter is arrested and then escorted out by the angel of the Lord. <laughs> Peter would write two letters, his first and second epistle, and, he, and in them he would call people to live and to die for Christ. Peter was a monumental failure who would then be used to turn the world upside down by living and dying for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, you have sinned, but your story doesn't end that way. If you follow Jesus, your life is not marked with your failure, but you're marked, but your life is marked with Christ's success in your life. So you have two options. You can either live and abide in your failure and have joy robbed from you every day. Or if you've repented, Live and have joy and rest and trust in the success and the grace of Jesus and what he's doing to, to, to multiply his kingdom and to bring himself glory. For the believer, there's always silver lining in our failure. Don't forget the words of Paul where he says, I don't look to what lies behind, but to what lies ahead. I mean, if anybody would have a hard time moving past their failures, it's Paul after killing Christians, right? If anybody would really struggle with their demons in that sense, okay, you know what I mean by that, it would be Paul. But here's the good news. Failures are redeemable. A good thing, a bad thing can be redeemed into a good thing. I made this mistake, but look how much God has shown me through that mistake. Look how God has set me up. Look how God has lavished grace upon grace. That's the redeemable aspect of your failure. Failures keep us in the right line when approaching the, when approaching the same scenario in which we previously failed. Again, you fail here. It's a cautionary tale for you the next time you're in the same trajectory to say, nope, not going to go that way. Failure has taught me that. I mean, if you're not learning from your failure, that's another problem. But we lean on those failures to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay in the right lane this time because that stunk. <laughs> that hurt. It hurt me. It hurt others. And I'm going to avoid that the best that I can. And that's the grace of God. Failures work to create dispositions of humility. It was John who said, listen, when Jesus and the disciples came on the scene and his disciples are baptizing, and then some came to John and saying, uh, Jesus is doing this stuff. That was supposed to be you. So are you okay with this? And he says, he must increase and I must decrease so for our failures failures to create a disposition of humility in our life is only good and then failures work to make us low so that Jesus might be lifted up failure should never be the goal it should never be trivialized or dismissed or sought after failure is worthy of repentance and failure should bring about humility and humility sets us up for a success that matters Don't live in the failures of your past. Learn from your failures. Learn from failures that we see of people in the Bible and rejoice in what God does despite your blemishes because it's glorifying to God and we are privileged to be a part of that. Let's pray and we can be dismissed.
Father, would you cause this word, this truth, to land deeply into our hearts? Father, so many things were covered in this short amount of time. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to move past even our best intentions, Lord, and that you would create action. Lord, you would create definitive decision, definitive works, definitive actions in our life. Lord, that we wouldn't stand at the end of all things on our intentions, but Lord, we would rest on our actions. Lord, I do pray that our failures would not rule us, that we would not subject ourselves to our failures. Lord, that we would understand the right side of that failure fence to be on, and that is to grow from them, to use them, to repent of them. But Lord, not to be shamed into a depression, not to be shamed into this status where we don't feel like we can be used by you. Lord, you know that I've had conversations with loved ones recently because of mistakes that were made 10 years ago where they feel like they had no voice, Lord, that their mistake robbed them of any voice for truth that they could be, Lord, and that's just what the enemy would have us believe, and I pray that no one in here would believe that. Lord, for anybody that's redeemed, anybody that's a child of God, despite whatever failure they've made, Lord, you've given them truth, absolute truth, and they can be a voice of change. They can be a voice of truth. Lord, I pray that we would buy into the things that are absolute, the things that are true. Lord, that we would be protected from the wiles of the enemy so that we would not succumb to things that would suppress us, that would stunt our growth, that would create any disadvantages, and that would in any way work against the kingdom of God. Lord, thank you for this time that I've had with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to look after the interest of one another. Help us to hold one another accountable. Lord, may we have here opportunity to stir one another up to love and good works, affirmation, admonishment, exhortation. May we be persistent and diligent with regards to each other's lives, not because we're nosy, but because we truly love rightly. May you bring about change that's needed here so that we can be effective there. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you're dismissed.